I mean, it's very difficult to stay current. It's difficult for civil servants to stay current. I mean, that's why you, you do need to call upon those who, for whom this is their day job. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me today, we've got Amber. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good, Dave. How are you? Yeah, all right. How's your Monday going? It's going all right. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's kind of a typical Monday, like busy back to back and the hours have just like rushed by and, and the day's basically over, which I can't quite believe. But yeah, I mean, besides that, it's it's been good. Thanks. Yeah, not dark though, which is nice. We're getting to that part of the year where things are beginning to perk up. Yes, I know. And I'm so happy about that because, um, yeah, we've actually got a bit more of a day, haven't we? On Wednesday, it is International Women's Day. Um, always great to see plenty of kind of inspirational stuff being shared around social, in particular LinkedIn, lots of kind of encouragement, lots of advice, lots of learning opportunities. Anything that you've got your eye on particularly this week? No, but um, do you know what I saw the other day? So this is, sorry, this is going a little bit off topic, not really answering your question here, Dave. Um, but um, <laughs> No, you go for it, don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you asked the question, Dave, because I'm going to give you some completely um, different answer to what you're expecting. But I was in, I can't remember where it was actually, I think it was like Asda or somewhere the other day. And they've actually got a, um, they've got like a couple of aisles or like little parts of the aisle dedicated to uh, International Women's Day. They had cards that you could send. They had like um, all this like um, different sort of like memorabilia type stuff. And they had like bags with like different prints on it, like saying like, you know, the, the future is female. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that in itself is, I don't know. I was kind of like, I was like, blown away that they actually do that and you can like send cards to like special and like influential like females in your life like I don't know I, I, I was amazed by that I thought that was really really cool and I think more places should definitely do that yeah, absolutely I mean go on then if, if you're going to sp- send a card to an inspirational um, woman in your life who might it be oh I mean I say this all the time. You're going to say it, your mum, aren't you? I'm going to say my mum, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very cute. You, you do whatever we... I'm sure I've asked you this question before and it's your mum. I know. She's... Um, yeah, she gets a shout out on the pod all the time. But yeah, it definitely would be. But I mean, before, I wouldn't even have thought of doing that. But the fact that there was like cards for this sort of stuff now, I was like, oh, yeah. I'm... Yeah, I'm all for that. It's really cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And look, we, today's episode is obviously very much aware that it's International Women's Day. We've got two female guests as our guests on the show. Um, The first interview with Dame Caroline Dynage, um, who was a Tory minister for six years um, in successive governments. She has been the Women and Equalities Minister. She has been a health minister. She has been um, in a number of, well, six different departments. And for two years, digital and culture. So a huge amount of insight on technology and regulation, which is obviously something that we touch on a lot in this podcast. And then later on in the show, we're going to be talking to Jesse Apple of Airwallex, all about financial crime and fraud. But we'll hand over to that first interview with Dame Caroline Dynage, um, who very kindly invited me up to her, her office with a view. Mm, very nice. So I'm very lucky to be sat in the office of Dame Caroline Dynage uh, at Portcullis House, overlooking Parliament, this is a very nice spot. You might get some big Ben bongs at any moment, so be aware. <laughs> well, it'll be quite nice, kind of for the for the atmosphere of the podcast as a whole. So, <laughs> look, thank you for for inviting me in. Thank you for coming. It's nice to see you. And you've been MP for Gosport since two thousand ten. Yep. Um, a minister in a number of different positions. I think for six years. Yeah, nearly seven. So uh, six different government departments, starting with justice and ending in digital and culture. Is it fair for me to ask which of those departments you, not fond memories, that would be wrong, but um, you enjoyed the most, I suppose, in terms of satisfaction? Yeah, I mean, well, everyone was an adventure and taught me so much. I loved being a health minister. I was minister for health for two years. I got reshuffled just before COVID started, so I was quite fortunate to not be there at that (laughs) point. But, you know, it it, it felt very important. It felt life-changing. I guess my spiritual home was where I ended up at nearly two years in digital and culture. And I mm. was the minister that did have to navigate 
both the digital and the cultural sectors through COVID, both of which were going in a completely different direction from each other. Our life yep. became digital and everything cultural ceased to sort of uh, happen in real life. So, you know, it was an interesting combination of challenges. You've certainly worked in, in sectors where there are disruptive elements, where you're talking about digital, talking about health. Those two certainly apply. I suppose it'd be great to kind of start with by asking from your experience over the last six years, but even more than that, since you, you entered government, um, what do you think the role of government is or can be in ensuring that the right environments exist for innovation to thrive where there's disruption? Yeah, I mean, I personally think that the least government intervention possible is the best way for innovation to thrive because government in and of itself is not wildly innovative it's not very fast moving I come from a nice normal business background I had a business for 20 years before I became an MP I'm effectively um, an entrepreneur stuck in a parliamentarian's body if you um, if you can see it that way Uh, and uh, you know you're permanently reminded of how difficult it is for government departments to be agile and responsive to the sort of innovation around the world which is why you know I've worked on the online safety bill it's taken years to get that to a stage where it's just now beginning to go through all the various parliamentary procedures Uh, so I think government just needs to really needs to have a role where it puts in place the regulatory framework the legal framework that allows technology and innovation to thrive doesn't put obstacles in its way but doesn't fiddle around too much with the you know so incentivizing things like r&d which we've been really good at mm. uh, but also not sort of putting in in the way too many obstacles or too much bureaucracy that's going to stagnate and, and stifle innovation how easy is that to do though because whilst i i totally understand the sentiment people have been talking about legal lag for quite some time and the pace of change within technology in particular is faster than ever. The amount of data being created is is you know increasing ex- exponentially. So I suppose putting the regulatory environment in place. I mean, you have to be agile to do that. Almost. I mean, how 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 best do we get to a position where government can even keep keep up to make sure that regulation is in place for for innovation to get the best out of itself? Yeah, which is the big big challenge because in and of itself, it's not an agile uh, environment. So I guess. Uh, the key thing is that when government is bringing in any form of legislation, particularly when it impacts uh, anything to do with sort of fast-moving technology or you know AI or anything like that, it's got to be future-proofed as much as possible. So what you can't do is deal with the threats or the risks or the challenges that you face now. You need to kind of almost keep it open. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so when I started working on the online safety bill. Uh, it, it had already been sort of in development for like three years. And so things like cyber flashing, things like um, uh, deep fakes, you know, had become part of our modern world, but had only, hadn't really even been talked about just three or four years previously, you know. So you, you're sort of dealing with uh, emerging technological challenges. So you need to kind of try and build into... Uh, every piece of legislation, the ability to future-proof the the challenges without necessarily knowing what the challenges are going to be. How important then, when you don't know what the challenges are going to be, is is getting industry in to talk to them? I mean, I imagine it's it's hugely important, but how willing necessarily are they to do that as well? Because obviously, some aspects of that bill might limit their their ability to do what they'd like to do. Yeah, and and a lot of them are not prepared to share. Uh, vast amounts of detail about how they how they operate or you know all the sort of secrets of their success if you like you know a lot of them are very adverse to any form of regulation whatsoever so that's difficult but you know I think industry is increasingly needs to lean into this because what you don't want is for government to regulate in a way that's just going to stifle innovation and stop them being able to develop in the the direction that they want to so I think uh, it is it is a challenge I, I suppose you know the 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 the, in the ideal world, you try and uh, take on board as much feedback as you can from those who really know what's going on, either from you know industry and, and um, techno- technological innovators, but also from sort of academia and civil society and everybody who's got thoughts, and then try and sort of package it in a way together where they're all probably going to hate you equally, but you're sort of somewhere in the middle. But 
uh, try and come up with innovation that rather rather than it being sort of uh, risk based, rather than it tackling specific risks, you kind of almost put in place the sort of structures and um, and uh, processes which enable it to be able to face the challenges of the future that we probably haven't even thought of yet. Thinking about that dynamic with the with the industry itself, it's interesting that you've obviously been a business leader because you will have answered many surveys yourself over, over time, uh, probably commenting on government uh, prior to coming into government. But one of the questions that, that we at Nash Squared asked um, as part of our digital leadership report was how successful the government was in promoting technology. And the views were mixed, certainly from our UK respondents. And funnily enough, if we look at the data, um, our respondents in Asia thought that their governments were doing um, four times the job that perhaps our own government was in, in promoting the sector. Do you think that's fair? I think there's, yes, it probably is fair. And certainly over the last couple of years, we've really been focused on dealing with emerging crisis, whether that you know was the COVID or whether that was um, uh, Ukraine. I'm really inspired by the recent kind of um, uh, departmental changes that Rishi and uh, Rishi Sunak's brought in as prime minister. I mean, if that, you know, if, if that symbolizes a change in direction in government thinking and a change in priorities, where he's got, you know, an entire government department now, which is focused on uh, technology and digital and R&D and life sciences and, you know, really sort of maximizing the potential of all those areas where actually you know we we have had huge success i mean you know we're we're still in the top 3 countries in the world for um for for, for unicorns for emerging technologies for fast growth uh, tech startups you know we, we we have had huge success so clearly we've done something right but we need to do more in order to keep up with some of the huge uh, growing economies out there and i and i think the approach that the pm has taken to sort of try and make the uk the kind of new Silicon Valley, if you like, you know, and if he, if if that can come to fruition, I think that would be really game changing for the for the UK. In terms of that um, dynamic between between the parties inside Parliament, I suppose on the outside, the public probably see an element of the pantomime that's put forward in terms of party politics. But I remember talking to Darren Jones, who's a Labour MP for this podcast, and he kind of very. I suppose, uh, humbly said, you know, I've, I've been asked to speak, uh, come here to, to Web Summit and find out what's going on in the industry. And, you know, people in Parliament seem to think that I know about tech and I don't really feel like I know about a lot about tech. That must be a challenge for those of you who obviously come into Parliament, have good life experience, but then you're talking about industries that have moved at frightening pace. Yeah since you perhaps left industry. Exactly right. I mean, it's very difficult to stay current. It's difficult for civil servants to stay current. I mean, that's why you you do need to call upon those who for whom this is their day job to make sure that they're advising you right at the top end of government. You know, that and, and that, that that's been a feature of successive different governments is that they've brought in uh, experts with experience <laughs> to advise them so in order to be able to make sure that this is reactive enough. If we accept that perhaps tech is not wonderful at self-regulation, and we mention that the UK is actually a really good hub for, for tech innovation and for unicorns and so on, what would you say the industry leaders themselves could be doing today to help build trust that they do have those intentions at heart via perhaps working with government and the opposition to create a better environment where where I suppose there's confidence that they have people's interests at heart. So you won't be surprised to know I have some thoughts on this because, you know, we we all know that the, some of the big tech companies have a lot more uh, a lot more powers to change things than they would necessarily admit to or exercise. You know, we saw it during we saw it during COVID. OK, so, uh, you know, I met with quite a lot of the big social media companies during COVID to look at how I was responsible for, you know, the, the whole sort of digital sector, but, you know, COVID mis and disinformation was a big part of it. Mm. You know, we, we knew right at the outset of COVID, we had people sort of storming around the country, burning down 5G masks because they'd read. So some of this stuff was unpredictable. They were burning down 5G masks because they 
read on the, the social media posts that that was somehow causing COVID. So that was difficult. Uh, that was at the outset. But we also knew coming down the track, there would be a raft of sort of COVID mis and disinformation that was going to be swarming across the online world and met with a lot of the online providers and social media companies in particular to look at how they could help with that. And they all, you know, almost without exception, they leaned in, you know, so suddenly you had this situation on WhatsApp where you couldn't forward information to uh, massive groups of different groups of people. You had a situation on uh, some of the social media companies where if you tried to forward something that you hadn't read, it says you've never, you haven't actually clicked this open. Mm. So you knew you couldn't share information, misinformation without actually having read it, you know, and on um, Facebook if there was something that was potentially dodgy or not from a reputable source, it would flag you to, it would signpost you to reliable sources of information on COVID, like, you know, the NHS website or whatever. You know, so they, they did lean in and they began to interfere in a way that previously they'd said, we can't interfere in this way, <laughs> which, you know, made me think uh, when it came to online safety, for example, there's a whole lot more that they could already be doing to uh, enforce their own terms and conditions, which are, you know, in many cases are, are there, although you know, quite well hidden, uh, without the government having to stomp all over them and say this is what you should, you know, it, 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 in reality, the online safety bill is not necessary if companies were taking matters into their own hands and making their sites sort of safer, rooting out illegal content, you know, taking stronger actions to keep children safe online, we wouldn't be needing to go through all this rigmarole here in, in Parliament. But one thing that's obvious talking to you, and hopefully it's obvious anyway, is that as a minister, it must be difficult to know exactly where to spend your time. You've talked about the online safety bill. Um, you have talked, obviously, about the effects that the pandemic had with spread of misinformation. Um, and there are a huge amount of challenges facing the country where it comes to, to trying to realise the potential, down to really trivial things like, I have moved to a new build estate in Kent because it's already got fibre built into the house, whereas my brother-in-law, who lives five miles down the road and in the countryside, has invested huge amounts of money in things like Starlink because he's a software, he's a head of software development for an asset management fund, bought a, a renovated barn, which is lovely, but frankly has awful internet connection. You know, you're 35 miles from London. Yeah. Where do you spend your time? Where, where should time be spent if we're going to try and, I suppose, make, make some tangible difference? Because it would be possible, right, to, to look at all these challenges and not really make any headway on all of them if you didn't focus in on one or two particular um, uh, areas where you feel you could make a tangible difference. Yeah. So, I mean, as a government minister, it's much more... I mean, I obviously don't do that anymore. I stopped um, I, I, just over a year ago. Uh, as a government minister, it's difficult because as much as you want to sort of look into the future and try and uh, come up with solutions to face the challenges that you know that we face now but we're going to face uh, in, in down the line you, you know you also end up trying to react to emergencies that are arising all around you you know covid being a case in point you know so i, I sort of went into the department to try and be sort of quite a creative thinker but i ended up sort of putting place the cultural recovery fund the film and tv restart scheme and <laughs> try and sort of bat away as much covid mis and disinformation as possible you know so it wasn't necessarily how i saw the next two years of my life panning out at that stage but it but it, you know you you that's it, it it is a very reactive job uh you know, I think backbench MPs have a big role, though, in, in this. I think backbench MPs have a bit more headspace to be able to uh, really immerse themselves in aspects of the world where they feel uh, that they have a genuine interest or a bit of experience and bring that expertise to bear uh, on, on government thinking. You know, so... Um, this morning I've been to the Dementia Research Institute partnership with Imperial College uh, with some remarkable work they're doing on how they use cutting-edge technology to stop uh, people with dementia ending up in hospital settings and therefore, and then, you know, eventually unable to go back into their own homes, how you keep people living at home safely for longer. Really sort of clever health tech. 
that's something that I, I'm really fascinated by because it sort of brings my two years of experience as a health minister, a couple of years as a digital minister into a really sort of practical human development and something that I'm going to kind of try and find a lot more about in the hope that I can feed that into the thinking of the decision makers here in parliament and I think you know it's one of the magical things that we can actually do as backbench MPs is kind of throw ourselves into finding out about these really sort of techie bits of uh, government policy that we've got a fascination with and, and actually hopefully making a difference. I think it's touching on a, something that I always say to my wife and to my family when you're watching ex-politicians talk about issues and you go why are they in government now because they've got that benefit of that experience and like you're saying when you're actually in it you're probably fighting fires but all of a sudden post that when you're not necessarily in a ministerial role you've got you've got that benefit of experience and hindsight to go yeah oh this is how we could fix these issues and this is where you've got value you know because you've got you know that those of us who've sort of plopped out of the other end of ministerial life but are still at members of parliament have got unique abilities to be able to understand how you do influence government thinking how you can get things done uh but with the sort of capacity to be able to follow where our interest leads and and make a difference in the things that we care about if there was one thing that you really could get your teeth stuck into now what would it be um so i'm really interested in this health tech that's something that is really fascinating me i'm doing a lot of work on that uh i've been um working separately on a uh trying to persuade the department of health to do a childhood cancer mission that's something that um, is, is, you know, separately is, is interesting to me. And the other thing I'm really interested in is um, the creative industries and how we maximise the potential of that. It's our global superpower. We're amazing at it. I was in South Korea just before, just before Christmas, and they're a country that really get the value of creative industries and you know, mm-hmm. a country that uh, no one else in the world speaks their language, and yet they're now seventh in the world for the power of their creative industries. We you know with Oscar-winning movies with some of our most uh, heavily watched TV programs like Squid Game, you know, yeah. with K-pop dominating the world. I um, have I'm, I'm on like a mission to make sure that the government like totally gets not only the soft power of our creative industries, but the uh, the huge economic potential of it as well. And there's massive tech uh, overlap in that, as you know. But the last one the question that I wanted to put to you. Um... One of the ministerial jobs that you had was was as Minister for Women and Equalities. Yeah. Um, and I, earlier this year, was over in Queen Elizabeth Hall, just across Parliament Square, um, watching you give an opening and talk to We Are The City's Women in Tech conference. Um, the data around women in technology, according to our digital leadership report, is looking slightly more promising, but there is still a very long way to go. What practical steps are you suggesting the industry could take to try and encourage more women into STEM or STEAM roles? Yeah, I mean, so I think this starts from a really young age. I think schools, um, uh, businesses and and industry need to engage with schools uh, uh, so that they can and, and I always say, um, you probably heard me say this in my speech, uh, when they send young when they send people in to talk to to kids, don't send your sort of highfalutin top executives because they are super elderly. They're like dinosaurs for these kids. <laughs> what you want is your brilliant, most whizzy uh, apprentices, your your long, young university leavers, so that you know these realizable role models, these tangible role models that young people can actually see themselves being in a sort of fairly manageable timescale. Uh, and, and then I, I think that I think if you can see it, you can be it. You know, and I think if you can break down some of the barriers of aspiration for some young people. I think that's really important. But I think also the other thing I love is when you can embed STEM into the school curricula, so curriculum, so that uh, it becomes part of everyday learning. So it's not seen as um, as different subjects in and of themselves, so that it's actually sort of totally part of everything we do on a day-to-day basis in school. They've done it in one of the uh, primary schools in my constituency where uh, STEM is embedded in the whole school curriculum. They have an after-school club where... Uh, a STEM after-school club, which is the most oversubscribed after-school club, and more girls than boys do it. So when you take sort of subjects and any kind of unconscious bias that there are girls subjects and boys subjects out of the equation altogether, you'll find that 
women are just as brilliant and just as interested and just as uh, capable of doing tech careers. So why aren't they? Which you know is what we need to harness. Well, how do you think they're positioning that after school club? perhaps differently to others to, to have that effect? Yeah, because it's sort of, because STEM is just so part of everything that they do in every, you know, every lesson. They don't do, they don't sort of sit there and do, today we're going to do a math lesson, today we're going to do a science lesson, today we're going to do it, whatever. You know, they actually just, they'll do a project and this project would be about designer craft for uh, transporting you across different planets in our solar system and you know and then they'll model those and they'll sort of try them out and all you know and 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 it's using every single one of your of your steam uh, subjects if you like but in a way that's entirely tangible and fun and inspiring and you know and, and I and I think business and industry have got such a key role to play here you know get your youngest most fabulous people into that educational environment to inspire the next generation and get kids into your work workplace because actually you know I love so I you know try and bring school groups up here as much as I can in parliament because I'm not getting any younger you know I want the next generation of cool young whizzy members of parliament here to be able to mm-hmm. put in place the legislation that's going to you know make our country thrive in the same way the you know if if I can bring a a youngster up here who looks around parliament and thinks yeah this is this is a bit of me I quite fancy this and god knows if Caroline can do it anyone can you know (laughs) um, I think the tech world needs to be doing the same getting the youngsters into their environment and demystifying these places that can be seen as sort of cathedrals of geekiness and and and, um, sort of super braininess and making them careers for everybody. Great. Well, look, I think that's a, a wonderful message to finish on. I really uh, I do appreciate your time and inviting me up here to have a chat with you today, and especially given your busy diary. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. So two years in digital and culture, um, especially during the pandemic. I think it's really refreshing, actually, to hear um, someone who is in frontline politics. I, I Look, I said this in the, in the podcast um, in the interview itself, I always get the feeling that when you've got people who've been in frontline politics and then they're possibly on the other side of that, you get this sense that you wish they were still in frontline politics because they seem to know a lot more than the people who were doing it at the time. <laughs> I don't think that's that difficult, though, to be honest, Dave, is it really? Oh, um. <laughs> but, you know, pe- people who get like torn apart by the press, I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of people like Ed Miliband in particular and, mm. um, and, and Ed Balls, who... Since or or Michael Portillo, if you like railways, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just thinking about my mother and father-in-law and what they watch. Uh, no, but you know, you think about the way that that they've kind of reinvented themselves after politics, and people kind of go, "Oh yeah, they talk a lot of sense." And there's this thing here where Caroline talks about the fact that having been in the front line of politics, she now has the experience to do the job. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Because um... Do you know what? I think before this interview, uh, there was a lot of mention, um, obviously, around, you know, disruption and innovation um, in this space. And it's not typically sort of things that you kind of link together, like someone who's obviously come from that sort of background. And it's been sort of like frontline politics. And then obviously, um, yeah, trying to be sort of disruptive and and, and innovative. I um, could not say that. Uh, Innovative. That's what I was trying to get at. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's it seems like a lot of what they do is obviously kind of like you know very sort of reg heavy and it's very you know sort of following sort of standard and set processes. So I thought that was um, yeah quite an interesting sort of point that she mentioned there, just about how can they be sort of like evolving and sort of trying to be kind of forward thinking in a job that I suppose it's typically just you would think it's very much aligned to just sort of you know follow like I said following procedures and sort of trying to do everything by the book. Um, or, or crisis, crisis firefighting. Effectively, you know, she she makes yeah. that point that her two years in in a department were not the two years that she envisaged because of events that transpired around her. Um, not, not you know, by no means at least the the, the pandemic. But um, I, I think it's fascinating to hear her talk about the fact that it's both very difficult to stay current mm. and admitting that. I think that's a really humble, honest message. I think for for politicians who have got such an important role in society to play to say and the fact that they need to lean upon people who are doing this day to day and then I think she, I think the exact words were some of the big tech companies have a lot more power to change things than they would like us to admit or they exercise 
and mm. talking particularly about COVID misinformation and the fact that, you know, that allowed companies to demonstrate that changes could be made when perhaps those companies hadn't lent in and, and they said that they couldn't do some of the stuff that they then did. Um, so, so there's some really, in, there's some really insightful and honest kind of retrospective comments there. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good point as well, actually, because I guess, I mean, you know, COVID was obviously such a strange sort of time for everybody. And I think, you know, companies where they could probably try to get involved and help out as much as possible. Did they, like she's obviously made the point there, did they do as much as they completely could? I mean, not too sure, I suppose. It, I think some companies maybe perhaps were a little bit cautious because getting involved in that sort of like political side of things um I guess it makes it tricky because they want to stay sort of fairly sort of neutral, I guess. Um, and, you know, to sort of to, to come in and, and sort of, yeah, just try to sort of involve themselves in that. It maybe takes away from their sort of like branding of what they do and and actually their sort of like missionary statement or, you know, all those sorts of things that maybe the company, you know, wants to sort of put out and put out that sort of good message. Um, I guess if we they should get- talk about the fact that they're adverse to regulation, you know, they're not prepared to share their secrets because it's 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 their competitive advantage which so it's it's kind of this bizarre push pull where it's like come on we like there there needs to be some level of regulation right for example on my instagram feed this morning i had um an advert for lu lu the french chocolate biscuits oh right yeah right i bought a packet of lu French chocolate biscuits two days ago mm. in Sainsbury's. I have not mentioned buying these chocolate biscuits to anyone. It's not like I've said, I have bought brand name chocolate biscuits in the house to my wife. I've not messaged anybody about it. Literally done nothing other than gone to the checkout and as one of five items have bought these these chocolate biscuits. And two days later, I have an advert on my Instagram feed specifically for those brand of chocolate biscuits Mm. and it's like hang on a minute so clearly sainsbury's have looked at my itemized checkout bill and sold that data to somebody who they might not have sold it directly to meta but they might they've sold it to somebody who eventually it has ended up at meta Mm. and it's like i know that's that's a very low level kind of piece but with that amount of data and that amount of we we I think we expect it when we mention something, you know, we know that devices are listening. We know that if you say something near a near a smart speaker that you're gonna get an advert in your feed. But when you haven't even mentioned it and it's just one thing that you've bought, that level of detail that these companies have on you now, if they've got that power, that influence, that ability to put stuff in front of you, they should comply to regulation. I think that's the trade-off. And the fact that they don't want to is frustrating when they have the mm. level of influence and ability that they do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that example, like, like you say, that's one example in like thousands, and this obviously happens like every single day. But I mean, it's terrifying, isn't it, to think that you've literally gone to the shops, done something as simple as buying yourself a packet of Buy biscuits, it. and then yeah. it's kind of like I don't know, like snowballed almost. Like it's obviously got, like you said, it's gone to somebody else, and you know, perhaps it's gone through like a cycle of being sold elsewhere, and and then you know, it's it's obviously sort of popped up on your Instagram. I think a lot of people probably would overlook that and just think, oh, you know, weirdly enough, I bought those biscuits the other day and probably wouldn't think, um, you know, sort of what's sort it, of gone in behind yeah. that. But it, it, I don't know. It's I mean, that's, again, that's one example. But it, it, it stood out, though, because of the fact that it wasn't even like I was, it wasn't like I'd gone online and searched for chocolate biscuits mm. and then I got an advert for chocolate biscuits. I hadn't done anything other than buy them hadn't mentioned it other than put them in the tin and I don't sound like my grandma's pantry put it on a <laughs> tin in the shelf and then a few days later you know happily ate me chocolate biscuits and there's an advert for that particular brand and I think that's why it stood out because it was like well that that has only only come from the fact that quite clearly the shop has sold my data somewhere along the line mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't kind of um me typing something onto the internet and it being clever yeah, and and I mean, this sounds like a fairly sort of silly point to make, but that's a big kind of, you know, household name as well. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you've bought it in, um, you know, like a local kind of like convenience store or something and, and you perhaps, um, you know, they, maybe it's not as kind of well protected perhaps or not as sort of, you know, strong sort of levels of security. Like that's a big, you know, meaty sort of large organisation. Like it's, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that's just, just frightening to think, but um 
yeah, I'm sure that happens on like a grand scale, like all the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's sorry. Bon- appreciate bonkers. I've gone off on one massively. Uh, <laughs> the, the chocolate biscuit brand. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the other point that Caroline makes that obviously is hugely relevant with um with International Women's Day on Wednesday. Um, this is going out Tuesday, as I've mentioned. We're, we're recording on Monday, but um, embedded STEM. I love this idea of a school where it's not maths or science, but it's a project, designer craft, you know, bringing all of those STEM or STEAM skills to bear uh, in a tangible, fun way. I, th- I think that's, I haven't heard, and maybe this is just because I'm not close to education, but I didn't know that some schools were approaching it like that. And it's amazing to then see that the effect is a STEM after school club where there are more boys than there are, uh, sorry, more girls than there are, there are boys. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I think you've in I mean, I'm not an educational professional, as I'm sure you're probably aware, Dave. Um, but I think <laughs> really? I, I hope you're aware. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, the education system, it's like things like this will get more people excited about these types of subjects like taking a different approach rather than just sitting behind a desk and especially if it's an after school club but like they've got to make it inside you know exciting and you know enticing to people to come along and want to get themselves involved and like you said if it's quite sort of project led it's um you know it's a totally sort of new way of doing things a totally sort of new way of of learning rather than just you know what we sort of do day to day and what people know um yeah i mean it's a it's a great idea so um i'm glad that you know, females getting involved and they're sort of looking to sort of take themselves into these, um, these, you know, sort of these career paths and get themselves involved in these types of things. Um, you know, and, and it seems as though there's lots of people behind that kind of encouraging females to get involved as well, which is great. That's, you know, mm. want to see more of that across, I guess, those types of subjects and STEM subjects, but also across technology as well, you know, all sort of areas where we need more people, we need more females, uh, more specifically to get involved. Like there should be a drive and there should be a real emphasis on it. And obviously I know within sort of the technology space, that's something that, you know, is, is we're, we're getting there kind of thing. And, and lots of people are making a more sort of conscious effort to sort of to get females into these industries. But the fact that it's starting at this age and it's starting in schools, um, that, that in itself is, you know, hugely positive because um, it's going to have a knock on effect, isn't it? It's like anything, you know, if, if people start to see their friends go into these after school clubs, and they're like, oh, wow, okay, this sounds really exciting. Um, I'm going to go along as well. And then, you know, their siblings might go along. And it's, yeah, it's just like that domino effect of more, um, you know, people getting involved at a lower uh, sort of level and a, um, obviously, you know, in, in sort of earlier years, then, of course, you know, come the future, you're going to have more people that are going to grow into really successful careers in this space. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah great stuff. Thinking of uh, an industry where uh, female representation could be better, I, I don't think there are, many stereotypically more more male environments than finance and perhaps cyber and financial mm-hmm. crime well after the break we are going to hear from jesse uh jesse apple from airwallex talking about the role of co- compliance as an enabler of growth and some stuff to look out for if you're trying to spot some red flags when it comes to financial crime here at tech talks we're very lucky to have a lot of content and sometimes we're not entirely sure what to do with it. For example, when we go to a conference, we will quite regularly meet 15 or 20 people and not know how to get them all on the show. So we've created something new, Tech Talks Extra, for those snippets from conference floors or from one-off events that we don't quite know how to fit into your regular Tuesday show. Tech Talks Extra is free, It's on a private RSS, so you do need to sign up for it and subscribe. But as I say, it's free and all you need to do is hand over your email address and in return, we'll give you instructions of how to access all of that additional content. To get instructions and to sign up to the show so you can play it on Apple and Google podcast players, all you need to do is go to www.nashsquared.com forward slash the hyphen hub forward slash tech hyphen talks hyphen extra hyphen sign up hyphen form alternatively have a look at the link in the show notes probably a bit of an easier way to do it don't miss out on all the bonus content that we've got from the likes of web summit unleash world or from any internal events that we're running welcome back to the second part of the show as i said we're going to be talking to jesse apple from airwallix um amber have you ever unfortunately fallen fraud uh, fallen sorry victim to bank fraud uh touch wood no i haven't 
Um, I've known people where it's happened to them pretty badly, actually. But personally, I've not had that. Um, but I am one of these people, like I'm very, very cautious about those types of things. Maybe a bit too cautious, perhaps, if that's even a thing. But um, yeah, so I, I haven't. But I, like I said, I, I definitely know people who have. And it's been really, you know, emotionally quite sort of like... Um, you know, it's sort of damaging for them. It's obviously financially damaging. It's, you know, caused a lot of sort of stress. And um, yeah, so I know it's yeah. hugely unpleasant. So about six months ago, um, we were nearly defrauded, as in me and my wife, from out of £16,000. Oh my gosh. By a company that called her up, claiming to be um, our bank. Um, and she did the thing of, well, let me call you back. Mm. And they she, she Googled the number that called her, and it was the bank's number. So she called it back, but they'd cloned the number and intercepted it. So then had this elaborate scheme where they'd set up um, a holding company under the name Savage Architects to take this loan out and then transfer it and then bounce it on. And the only reason <laughs> we didn't get ourselves in real trouble was um, she was on the phone when she came home and spoke to me and said, oh, I've been on the phone to the bank for ages but don't worry they've said that because they've kept me on the phone for such a long time they're going to give us 500 quid at which point i went hang up hang up right now no bank is ever going to give mm. you 500 pounds for keeping you on the phone uh, but yeah it was really elaborate and it was in the news at the time and several people have been defrauded out of thousands tens of thousands of pounds and Gosh. they'd ended up being liable for it because these companies were taking out the loans and then transferring them from account to account to account to the point that the banks couldn't trace the money anymore. And they were like, well, the money's been taken out in your name. You owe the money. Mm. Thankfully, I got her to hang up and I called the bank and we got it stopped before the money left the account. But these these attacks are getting more and more complex and mm. elaborate. And um, yeah, there's there's some really good advice towards the end of this interview from Jessie where she talks about kind of consumer um, uh, financial crime. But there's also a huge amount at the beginning that's tailored towards companies, the role of compliance and uh, behavioral models that can help um, guard against against risk, etc. I think you make a really good point about obviously them becoming more complex because, um, yeah, they're so mature, like some of these schemes now, aren't they? Like even yeah. some of the texts that you get come through, you're like, oh my goodness, like, you know, I, I could well have kind of fallen for that. And I'm sure many people have. And I'm, yeah, I think there's like a level of um, almost like sort of shame or like embarrassment. Like if you do fall for one of these things, you're like, oh, you know, what an idiot. And of course you kind of go back over everything. And yeah, I think you feel a little bit silly, but like they are so elaborate that like that that's how they catch people out, obviously. So um, yeah. Yeah, like and they it, get it people and they so tell many. them that there's this issue and, and they make you really stressed. Yeah, of course. Like, and also, if you get something come through, which is, you know, an account claiming to be your your bank and like the bank's details are all there. And if it's obviously because I had one the other day that came through from like NatWest and I don't bank with NatWest. So obviously straight away I was like, well, good try. But obviously that's not right. Um, but if it's obviously something coming through and it's from the bank that you're with, like, um I don't know, we, we just, you know, just, you just go with it, don't you almost? So you're maybe just perhaps a bit mm. too trusting, but like you just, you just go with it because you've got no reason to question it. But, um, and they, yeah. throw, they throw you off guard. They put you in a pressure situation where you, where you go, Oh no, there's this situation. I need it fixed. Mm. And thank you for helping me fix it. You know, they're, they're, they're preying on people. Yeah, of course. Like you're saying, and if you speak to somebody on the phone as well, um, I mean, if you speak to your actual bank on the phone, like you don't, you know, perhaps they'll maybe ask a security question or something, or they're asked for some sort of specific details. But um, I mean, if they're claiming again to, you know, to be your, you know, your bank, and it's somebody from like Lloyd's, for example, that's called you, and if you were actually on the phone to your bank about, you know, trying to sort out an, uh, an issue, you probably wouldn't ask them all these questions. Like, are you actually who you say you are? Because you just take it as yes, they are that person. So, um, yeah, I think we you know you you want to sort of think that you could be sort of super vigilant in these situations but as you said if there's like a time pressure and there's like a level of urgency around it you might often just overlook this and just jump straight in and then obviously almost kind of find out the hard way yeah absolutely well look we'll hand over to the interview with uh jesse amber thanks for joining me today and to everyone listening uh we hope that you enjoy your celebrations for international women's day yeah get yourself to asda to buy a card <laughs> thanks dave
Today, I'm looking to be joined by Jesse Apple, the Head of Financial Crime Compliance at Airwallex. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. Before we get into anything else, Airwallex is probably an organisation that most people aren't overly familiar with, um, even if they, they have heard of them. So why don't we start there? Who, who are Airwallex? What do you do? Airwallex focuses on providing products and services to corporates. So um, if you think of us as basically all the payment backwiring that corporates then either tap into as a one-stop shop for all of their payment needs or layer on top of and basically then are able from a startup perspective, for example, to launch their products and services themselves off the back of all of our backwiring. Um, they can do that really quickly and ultimately rely on us then with all of our infrastructure to have the licenses, to perform the checks, to process the payments. Um, so we're a one-stop shop to basically either help corporates have really great product range at really competitive prices or genuinely help them actually launch their company. Whereas if they had to build that out themselves, it would take years. Where did that idea come from? Because a one-stop shop in this area, it's, I imagine it's kind of evolved and it doesn't just kind of fully fully formed out of a founder's head. It's one of those things that uh, I imagine over time, oh, that service makes sense. Let's add this, let's add that. But, but what's the story behind the business? Our CEO, Jack, uh, started a coffee shop in Australia and had a lot of pain points as a small company trying to get different, um, basically pay suppliers for, you know, coffee beans, coffee lids in various countries, pay contractors, pay invoices. It was very expensive um, and, and almost impossible to be profitable. And he identified this pain point for small to medium sized businesses, which is initially why one of our key offerings was foreign exchange rates at very competitive prices. Um, but then ultimately realized that we have an ability to help solve lots of problems for different corporations of all sizes. So initially, that kind of small coffee shop that needs really competitive rates to have any chance of, of kind of having any form of profit margin and helping them set up, create, sustain, grow, but then saying, actually, large, large corporations have lots of pain points that we can help with as well. I mentioned before being all the kind of payment backwiring, that's something that let's say, you know, the next wealth tech that wants to launch an investment platform would need, right? So it's not just about small coffee shops, it's then actually about pain points for lots of companies of all sizes, including startups that want to not only um, have customers themselves, but facilitate payments between their customers and their customer suppliers, et cetera. Um, and, and really solving all those pain points for companies of all sizes, which is why then as we saw customer demand and we did product market fit, we realized that we were able to solve lots of problems for lots of different companies. Look, your, your career is in traditional banking. To then find yourself in an organization which has, has its roots in a coffee shop must have been quite, quite different, right? Indeed. Of course, I didn't uh, join when it was a coffee shop. <laughs> but um, No, of course, of course. But that has, to, that has to be in the DNA of the company in some yeah. ways that's just different to those institutions that you were used to. Absolutely. And it is in our DNA because what we ultimately care most about is the customer. And that starts from that re really origin of being a coffee shop and, and struggling to, to be a business. Um, I have always worked in financial crime compliance. Uh, I've been doing it for over a decade and I did it for large institutions. Um, and the similar risks of a large bank in terms of understanding how you could be susceptible to money laundering, fraud, terrorist financing, sanctions evasion applies to fintechs. But what really got me excited specifically about Airwallex was we're this one-stop shop that helps businesses launch and, and kind of make their dreams come true. So yes, it's at the core of our DNA in terms of customer first and solving problems for customers, but it's evolved to a place of how do we do that in the most effective, efficient way possible? And how do we do it? How do we meet all of our requirements in a smart way where we're putting the customer first, we're mitigating the risks, 
we're meeting all of our regulatory obligations, but we're not just doing it the way all the traditional banks have been doing it because that's what everybody does and therefore we should do it the same. We're kind of in general putting that mindset of how do we solve problems in, in the best, most logical way possible. And, and I love that. And I find that really stimulating. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because kind of you talk about making their dreams come true and that sounds wonderfully aspirational and very <laughs> startup-y. Right. And then you talk about mitigating risk and regulation. And it's like, oh, get back into the world of, of, of you know, financial services. I mean, that there must be that push pull between, I suppose, managing clients and what kind of a, what someone expects, or what an organization expects from someone in this sector versus being a fintech. And I suppose having a, a different approach. Is that a tightrope that's hard to walk? That's a great question. I think the role of compliance is to be an enabler of growth. And actually, what we all want is sustainable growth. And if you're non-compliant, you're not going to be growing sustainably, right? So what we do is we partner with the commercial teams to say, what are our customers' problems, right? What are their pain points? How do we offer products and services that genuinely tackle those pain points? But also understanding that there are risks that come with offering those products and services. How could they be used correctly by our customers? But how could they be misused by bad actors that want to get on the platform? So there is a push and pull in terms of understanding the risks and understanding what steps we need to take to mitigate them. But I like to think of us as an enabler of growth and a partner. And without that partnership, you won't have sustainable growth. So you will always have some risk when you take a customer, right? Because the only way to have no risk is to basically never have a customer ever. <laughs> um, but it's about understanding who our customers are, what level of risk do they bring inherently in their nature of business and their geographical footprint and their own products and services and customer base? And then layering on top of that, what do we offer them and what risks and exposure come with that? Um, so again, I think I'd like to think that we're an enabler of growth and the commercial teams do appreciate that, right? Because if we get fined or we lose our licenses, there's no business to grow. Similarly, if we're too restrictive, they're unable to grow, we're dead in the water. So it's that partnership that together creates the growth trajectory that, first of all, we want, but also is sustainable. You talk there about kind of being fined or, or losing your license. It stands to reason that regulation is an incredibly important part of the industry you work in. But across technology, if you look across tech outside of, of financial services, it's only a couple of days ago I was talking to a, an advertising firm in California who were talking about the fact that regulation in advertising and privacy is driving innovation. How is regulation forcing you to innovate and to provide services that, that really do, I suppose, coming back to that phrase, make, you, make your customers' dreams come true and provide an, a, a kind of a, a fit-for-purpose uh, service that, that excites. Yeah. What's been really interesting is there's been more and more publication around non-face-to-face -face onboarding from all of the, the big players, right? So from FATF, from Wolfsburg Group, from EU regulations are also tackling this. And it's something that fintechs have been doing um, and when I say non-face-to-face -face onboarding, what I mean by that is you're bringing on a new customer without meeting them in person, right? So you're doing it digitally. And while fintechs have been doing this for a number of years, it was always perceived as a high-risk delivery channel, a high-risk way of adopting a customer because basically the assumption is there's an increased risk of impersonation when you do non-face-to-face -face onboarding. And impersonation risk is someone pretending to be someone that they're not. Um, and what's been really interesting is all of these bodies have actually been coming out and saying non-face-to-face -face onboarding is actually potentially a low-risk delivery channel. And how do we first of all, accept that this is now a fact, that a lot of fintechs are using this, a lot of customers are expecting this. Um, and also, how do we help fintechs, banks, et cetera, adopt this delivery channel in a way that's lower risk? So for example, 
when we think about traditionally how a bank would bring on a new customer, right? Someone would go in person to a brick and mortar office and they would bring uh, various documents and identification. And the person working at the bank would check that they thought the documents uh, were authentic. There was no signs of fraud. They would check the face of the person to the ID, to the, you know, to the person standing in front of them and kind of implicitly proof of life. This person is alive. They're standing in front of me. And fintechs have been able to do that through non-face-to-face onboarding, obviously digitally. So they upload documents. We have lots of software that can check if there are signs of fraud for the, for the documents. Um, There's all sorts of facial recognition where we can say, does the face match the ID? Um, And we can do liveness checks. So, you know, you can do audio, visual, et cetera, where you're saying kind of, yes, we, we believe that this person is alive. And actually what these publications have been saying is fintechs are in a position or or I say fintechs, any financial institution doing non-face-to-face onboarding um, are actually in a position to leverage the additional data that they get that that kind of traditional setup would not get. So for example, we get um, your email address. You can get, for for instance, fraud scores on email addresses. You have an IP address, you have telephone numbers, so you have country codes. There's all sorts of additional data that you get through this non-face-to-face delivery channel that the kind of key bodies are saying should be leveraged and actually when leveraged, are potentially even lower risk of accepting a new customer and and allowing them to open an account. Um, So the regulation has been helping to your question with innovation and actually coming out and saying, not only do we accept non-face-to-face onboarding, but potentially you're in a position to do a lot more with it. For for example, we also do um, direct or indirect access to government sources to check the data provided by the customer. Um, There's also kind of deceased person lists that you can check against to make sure that someone hasn't taken a real deceased person's details and presented them as their own. Um, There are all sorts of checks that we can do. Some fintechs even have technology to look at the angle of the phone if you're doing a selfie. So are you stretching out your arm and trying to get the face of someone else? Or are you doing it kind of the, the normal way where you would be capturing your own face? There are all sorts of different... Um, data points that we're able to leverage. And regulation is saying, let's leverage them. Let's actually make sure that the authentication process is robust because that's the best deterrent for bad actors getting onto your platform. We're talking about bad actors there and obviously as head of compliance around financial crime, I I suppose there's 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 a really dumb question that's probably worth asking, which is what is financial crime today? Because I've probably got quite a um, a traditional view of, of, of what we mean when we talk about financial crime? Financial crime is an umbrella. So you'll have lots of risks within that umbrella that all kind of come together to fall into the definition of financial crime. So the pillars are firstly, money laundering. Secondly, fraud. Thirdly, bribery and corruption. Fourth would be sanctions evasion. Um, And fifth would be terror financing. Now, in general, you don't see one risk and not the others. So you'll have a combination of these risks in any particular case. Reason being, in general, when someone is trying to move funds that are from an illicit activity, they'll want to cover it up. (laughs) So there's always an element of fraud, right? So whether it's bribery and corruption and you have dirty money that you're trying to make look clean, one, there's some element of fraud because you're pretending that the source, you know, is, is other than what it really is. It's not coming from a bribe. It's coming from something else, some service rendered, right? So you're trying to make it look clean. So you're money laundering and there's the fraud element of covering it up. Um, in general, you'll therefore have more than just one of those risks, but those all together make up the financial crime umbrella. It stands to reason that this is an increasingly complex picture. Um, and I suppose it's interesting to ask how difficult or easy it is to fight financial crime. What role can tech play? And is it also 
I know that there'll be question marks around bias if we're using data, but is it affordable for all organizations? Is this getting more or less expensive? You know, with most technologies, you kind of get proliferation, it, it becomes cheaper, but it would appear that I suppose you've got bad actors who are increasingly complex th themselves and that it might be kind of this, this arms race that some people struggle to keep up with and then at greater risk. Mm. Um, so firstly, the way that we try and tackle it is on a risk-based approach. You'll hear everybody that works in financial crime talk about that, but what does that mean? It means having sophisticated systems to know or help you know where to look. So when you think about the cost of the resources, the cost of the time and the controls, you're really targeting what you deem higher risk. So you're not doing the same level of scrutiny to everyone. And that's how, firstly, you try and kind of balance the cost and the risk with, you know, running a company. Um, the way that we try and do that, actually, I would arguably say is less bias um, because in general, you're doing it on a behavioral basis and not based on static data points of an individual or a company. So if you think about the initial onboarding, right, and we've talked about kind of the, what that might look like, once you've onboarded, in general, everything in terms of how scrutinized you are is based on your behavior, so that's a really interesting twist, in my opinion, right? It's not just about Dave in the UK. It's about how is this customer behaving? What types of money in terms of is it cash or is it transfer? What are the amounts? What countries are they coming from? Who are you sending money to? All of that is driving trigger-based reviews as opposed to just Dave in the UK, low risk, will ignore you for three years, and then we'll come back in three years and see, did we miss lots of things? So having this behavioral based analysis, and this is where machine learning can be so useful, is actually, of course, there is bias in how you set up the machine learning models, and you have to be conscious of that, but could be even less bias if kind of taken in its pure form. Because again, it's, it's about how you're behaving and not who you are. So even though, for example, I might initially be deemed a low-risk customer, if I start getting large cash deposits and I'm sending all the money that goes into my account immediately out to a very high-risk country, then I should no longer be low-risk, right? And what the models are helping us do is identify that and change my risk rating and change when we look at me. Um, whereas traditional banks would often have what we call a periodic review. So you'd have a set cadence based on your risk rating, right? So Jesse is low risk. We're going to come back and check Jesse out in three years. Machine learning models don't do that. Within three months, if I start, again, getting large cash deposits, moving all the money in my account to a high risk country, trigger review happens immediately. Um, similarly, if I'm deemed potentially to be high risk when I onboard, but I behave, let's say, normally, right? Or in a low risk way, then my risk rating will drop. And so we're not wasting resources, time, money, looking at someone who's behaving in a way that we're not concerned about. So look, as a final question, what we're talking about here is, you know, what organizations, what organizations can do looking at patterns, thinking about um, spending their money wisely in terms of protecting themselves, machine learning bias. This is, an, as we've said, an incredibly complex picture. And yet for the average person, the approach tends to be, hey, if you get a link, don't click on it, and generally be kind of quite wary about everything, which there feels like there's quite a big gulf in between the two. So what do you think the average person should be aware of in the current climate and pay attention to to keep safe? I'm, as you might have guessed, I'm naturally quite paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 um, I'm more kind of cautious than maybe is necessary. However, I think anything where you're being asked to provide details that are either unnecessary for the product or service that you're trying to purchase or, or enjoy, um, and, or if the source 
reaches out to you as opposed to you reaching out to them. I think those should be red flags. So, you know, if you're um, an Airwallics customer and, um, you know, someone purporting to be Airwallics reaches out to you and says, please confirm your account details, um, that would be something that I would say should be a red flag, right? So, you know, you kind of end the conversation and then reinitiate the conversation yourself with the contact details that you know are correct. Um, And again, I think uh, it's all about data, right? So when we talked about impersonation risk, when people ask for details that don't seem necessary for the product or service you want to enjoy, in general, the red flag that should go up is what are they going to use these details for, right? Why do they want to know my eye color? For example, why do they want to know my mother's maiden name? Um, they should be red flags in terms of people fishing for information to then potentially try and impersonate you. Well, look, it's been fascinating to chat to you. It's uh, it's an area that obviously I think people need to be aware of, but are equally um, one that's evolving all the time. So thanks for giving us an insight into into your thoughts on, on where we're at today. Thank you, Dave.